You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org media. If you would please turn to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We continue this evening to think about local church unity. And tonight we come to verses 4 through 6, but I want us to read beginning with the first verse. Ephesians 4, and we read beginning with verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, exhort you to walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice to look at these verses tonight, to declare them, to think about them, and to apply them. And we confess with joy that when it comes to the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, our need is always you, and our place of dependence is clear. The Lord, unless you work, the preacher can't preach in a way that is glorifying to God and effectual in nature, and without your work, we will be self-deceived hearers of the Word instead of doers of the things that we see. So Lord, would you be at work in this next hour teaching us? May what occurs in this next hour be in demonstration of your Spirit's working in power, and may the result be the edification of your church. You know, Lord, where we need to be corrected. You know where we need to be fortified. You know where our minds are in need of enlightenment and instruction. You know where we're experiencing special challenges in the seasons in which we're living. Lord, you know us perfectly, and may you meet with your church tonight in your word and meet our need. We ask you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The unity of the local church any local church, this local church, the unity of the local church is a manifestation of the unity of salvation. The only kind of unity that a local church can know that truly glorifies God is a unity that flows out of the reality of salvation. As we've said throughout this series, we must always remember that we are already unified by virtue of God's saving work in our lives. We know a unity, we have a unity that is objective, settled, shared by everyone in this room who has been saved. Wherever the Spirit of God has done His regenerating work in a person's life, wherever the new birth has occurred, wherever the Spirit of God has taken up residence in a life, that person now shares in the unity that our verses describe. We don't create unity in the church. We experience it. We maintain it. We live it out 
as we are submitted to the Lordship of Christ and being filled with the Spirit of God. So that everyone who truly belongs to this unity has the capacity by the Spirit of God to live in a way that agrees with it. And that's really what local church unity is. It's just living in a way that agrees with our calling. So far we've talked about the ambition necessary for local church unity. The ambition is seen in verse 1 as Paul exhorts us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. The motivation, the ambition necessary for local church unity is to glorify God, to live lives that fit with God's mercy to us. It just let that settle for a moment upon your minds that when we live in ways that encourage disunity or encourage it to, to remain where it could be cleared up, we're living in a way that's out of step with our, our very salvation. We're living in a way that's out of step with God's grace to us. That ambition requires attitudes, Spirit-produced attitudes, which is why he moves into verse 2 with, all humility and gentleness, with patience. These are the attitudes necessary for us to walk together in a unified fashion. We must live lives clothed with humility, gentle with each other, patient with each other, which calls for action. The attitudes then flow out in action. Forbearance is one of those things we live out of those attitudes, bearing with one another in love, a holy, God-honoring, loving toleration. Not a toleration for evil, a toleration for each other. To love each other despite our failures and despite our sins. To grant forgiveness where it's needed. To ask forgiveness where it's needed. And to go on loving each other every step of the way. That kind of holy toleration expresses humility and gentleness, and patience. What this means is we're working, striving to maintain, to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, beginning at verse 4, having seen the ambition, the attitudes, the actions necessary for local church unity, now we come to the awareness necessary for local church unity. This is something we're going to see again and again in the New Testament. Christian living requires knowledge. Christian action is based on fact. Our practice is based on theological truth. Our duty finds its reason, its explanation, its fuel in doctrine. And so after exhorting us to, to apply the attitudes that allow us to maintain unity, and after telling us that it's a unity of the Spirit that exists in a, in a bond of peace, we might ask, well, what is that bond of peace? What is it that holds us all together? And in verses 4 and Five and six, this is what he gives us. He gives us an extended explanation, really, of what is the bond of peace. I don't think it's exhaustive. There are other things he could mention. 
But this definitely gives us insight into how we're all bound together. A couple things to remember as we get started tonight. First of all, I would remind you that when Paul is talking about peace in the book of Ephesians leading up to the fourth chapter, what he's primarily talking about is this glorious unity between Jew and Gentile in this one new man, the church. Where before there was an enmity, where before Gentiles had to relate to God in a way different than a Jewish person who had faith in God. That is, you, you became a, Bru- a Jewish proselyte, submitted to the law of God. Now you stand on equal ground. There's one new man in Jesus Christ. There's no dividing wall. Flip over to the second chapter for just a moment. Look at verse 11. Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, Remember that you were at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. God is working primarily through the nation of Israel to make His name known and to advance the gospel throughout the earth. And we did not belong to that nation, which is why there was a process by which you became a proselyte if you were going to believe in the true and living God. But it was not ours by nature. It didn't have any standing in Israel by virtue of our birth. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace, who made both groups one and broke down the dividing wall of the partition by abolishing in His flesh the enmity, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in Himself He might create the two into one new man, making peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, having in Himself put to death the enmity. And He came and preached the good news of peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. Peace with God, peace with each other, a peace known in salvation, by faith in Jesus, who is the Lord of the church, one new man in Jesus Christ. Verse 18, for through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. This is the peace he's been discussing leading up to chapter 4. And so he's saying to these Jewish believers and Gentile believers in the church at Ephesus, primarily a, a Gentile congregation, don't you understand that the oneness, the unity you have in Jesus Christ needs to be manifested among you You are one new man. There is this bond of peace that God Himself has created by the Spirit. And you need to understand what that bond is. So how are we held together? And what He gives us in verses 4 through 6, because what would hold Gentile believers together with Jewish believers holds Gentile believers together with Gentile believers. We all have these same seven things in common with each other. 
He gives us seven ways that we're unified in Jesus Christ. So this is the piece that he's talking about. And as we remain aware of these truths he's going to give to us, and as we respond to those truths, as we have theological, doctrinal fuel, we're able to live out in a practical way the unity that exists because of Jesus. So knowledge before action. Theological truth before there can be obedience. And He's giving us the truth we need to be able to live this out. Second thing I want you to note is that these verses are clearly organized in a Trinitarian fashion. In verse 4, He speaks of the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, He speaks of the Son of God. In verse 6, He speaks of God the Father. What, what that would remind us of is that what really holds us all together can be summed up in a very simple way. It's our fellowship with God. It is how God has related us to Himself. He's going to remind us of who we are in a way that puts emphasis on the Spirit of God and who we are in a way that puts emphasis on the Son of God and who we are in a way that puts emphasis on God as our Father. But it is our fellowship with the one true and living God, the God who is Trinity. It is our fellowship with Him that explains our union. That also reminds us that when we don't live it out, we're grieving our God. We're standing in opposition to the purposes of the Spirit of God. We're standing in opposition to the purposes of the Son of God. We're standing in opposition to the purposes of our Father. Our unity is found in our relationship and fellowship with God, and it's God who's related us to Himself in the way that He has. One commentator says this, the apostle is aware of the endless variety of temperaments among his readers and the diverse racial and social backgrounds from which they have come into the Christian church. But he would have them even more aware of the spiritual realities that now unite them and that should completely transcend differences of background. Let me just pause and say something I think that's very important. As you know, in the past 10 years, there's been a movement to say the way we're going to have unity in the church that embraces diversity is to understand each other in all of our diversity. And what Paul emphasizes is not you and I understanding each other so much as we understand our fellowship together in the Lord. To understand how God has related us to Himself, that's where we all stand together as completely one. He's aware of their differences, temperaments, backgrounds. And yet, what does he emphasize? These spiritual realities. And so it should be with us in the local church. He goes on to say this already in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he has spoken of the spiritual blessings that are now shared between Jews and Gentiles. And in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, of the barriers between them that have been broken down in Christ. All he says all have now equal shares in the privileges of grace. He names what they have in common. A unity by the Spirit in the church. A unity in Christ, acknowledged and confessed as Lord. A unity ultimately in God the Father and source of all. As Card puts it, the corporate unity of the church is not a desirable end, 
but a datum to which the behavior of its members must conform. It's not something we're trying to achieve. It's something that is. And now our behavior needs to conform to that reality. That's what Francis Fox is saying, and that's what we must remember. So let's look at verses 4 through 6 together, and let's see what the Lord says to us about unity. First of all, our unity exists in our relationship to the Spirit of God. How are we one? We are one in our relationship to the Spirit of God. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. One body, what's he talking about? He's talking about the church in its global sense, in its universal sense. The church made up of every genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And making use of this body analogy, we are reminded that we have all been brought into a union with Jesus Christ by the work of the Spirit of God. This is why he mentions one body in a verse that focuses on the Spirit of God, because this is how we became members of this body, by virtue of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. We read it a moment ago, how we're being built together into a holy temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. He has taken up residence in each one of our lives so that we can say He dwells in His church. By virtue of the Spirit's presence, we are the body of Christ. We've been joined in union with the Son of God by virtue of the Spirit's work. Which gets to the next thing he says, one Spirit. We all belong to the same body. We all have been made partakers of the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is how we were baptized into the body of Christ. You'll read about the baptism by or with the Spirit of God. Christ is the baptizer. We are joined to Himself by virtue of the gift of the Spirit of God. Everyone who has received the Spirit of God and everyone who is saved has received the Spirit of God. Everyone who has received the Spirit of God belongs to the same body. It is by one Spirit that we are one body. Aaron read it earlier in the service, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. So he's making clear. I'm just using an analogy. Your body has many members, but it's one body. Well, so it is with the family of God. So it is with those who belong to Christ. Next verse, For also by one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. How do you explain the body of Christ? You explain the body of Christ by the Spirit of God. Everyone in whom the Spirit of God dwells is a part of that body, using that analogy. Everyone has been joined to Christ, and you have the Holy Spirit. Which is why he can use a different analogy not just the body analogy, he can use a different analogy to teach the very same truth, the analogy of a building or a temple. Read it a moment ago in Ephesians 2.18. Let me read it again. For through Him we both have our access in one Spirit to the Father, so then you're no longer strangers and sojourners, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, that's His family, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Using this building analogy, the foundation is made up of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary, a temple, in the Lord. 
in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in the church of God. And the church of God, in the sense of that temple or that body, is made up of every genuine believer because each believer has the Holy Spirit. In fact, this is what distinguishes you and me, Christian, from the world, that we have the Spirit of God. This is the difference between someone who has a form of godliness but denies the power of God and someone who's truly a believer. You understand, the visible church will have lost people in it. I wish we could say we strive. We believe in regenerate church membership. We counsel with everyone before they join this church. It should be the goal and the desire that every person who belongs to Founders Baptist Church is regenerated But we know from the New Testament that that will never be the case. There are people within our membership who don't know Christ. Well, what would distinguish a false son within the membership of the church from a true son? The answer is the true sons have the Holy Spirit. And the person who is just an empty professor, they may know the doctrine, they may be able to repeat the gospel message, they may give a verbal profession that says they believed it, But if you don't have the Spirit of God, you don't have Christ, and you don't really belong to the body as it's being spoken of in our verse. Romans 8, 9 through 11 says, However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. We talked about it this morning, how genuine believers evidence regeneration with an obedient life. And if you ask, where is the power found for that submissive, God-loving, Bible-believing and obeying life? The answer is the Spirit of God. The same Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, He says, will give life to your mortal bodies. He goes on to say in verse 13, for if you're living according to the flesh, this is why I think he's talking about how you're living when he talks about giving life to your mortal body. He will enable you to live a life that honors God. Why do I say that? Because he, in the very next verse, talks about this difference between obedient living and disobedient living. Verse 13, for if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the practices of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom, that is by that same Spirit, we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. This is the evidence of the Spirit of God in a Christian's life. You love the Lord. You walk with the Lord. You follow the Lord, even when it means you're suffering. You go on striving to live an obedient life. Why? Because you're a new creation. And you have a resonant truth teacher. And you can never be who you were before the Lord saved you. And He's at work in you, giving you the desire and the ability to do what pleases God. And so this is what stands out as the difference between the worldling and the believer. The believer has the Lord. The believer has the Spirit of God. 
So one body that's explained by one Spirit. We all have the same Holy Spirit. And then he says in verse 4, one hope of your calling. Now you may have noticed at the end of that Romans 8 passage that I read, he says that by the Spirit of adoption we cry out, Abba, Father. But he goes on to say, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, we're also heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. That is, we have an inheritance in store, held apart, protected for us who believed in Christ. He will see us all the way home and give to us everything that He's promised in His Son. Well, the Spirit of God is the first fruits of our inheritance. If you have the Holy Spirit, He is the down payment, as it were, on what you're going to have for all of eternity. And one of the ways that He works in our lives is to fuel our hope associated with that calling, which has to do with our Lord. We look forward to the day that all things add up to Jesus. All things are united in Him. And we look forward to the inheritance that is ours in Christ, that we share with our Lord. And the Spirit of God fuels that hope, practically, experientially, fuels that hope with the Word of God in the lives of God's people. Paul prays this in Romans 15, 13. He says this, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. What kind of people should we be as people who have been saved? Joyful people. People whose lives are characterized by peace, the peace of God that reflects that we're at peace with God. And we're to live lives that are abounding, that is overflowing, in hope. Uh, looking forward, the sure expectation, the convictional certainty that everything that God has promised us in His Son will be ours, not because we deserve it, but because of His grace to us in His Son, and His Son is that treasure, every other treasure we have in Him. And the Spirit of God fuels that hope in the believer. Harold Honer comments, he says, the noun Elpis, hope, was discussed at chapter 1, verse 18, and was defined as eager expectation of the outworking of God's plan. Let me just stop and insert this thought. I mean, does that characterize us? Are we eagerly expecting the outworking of what God has revealed to be His plan in the Scriptures? Are we really looking forward to our future? Because that's hope. He goes on to say the hope presented in Ephesians is the reality that all things will be headed up in Christ, chapter 1, verse 9. And though the believers are presently seated with Christ, in the future they will be displayed in heaven as trophies of His grace, chapter 2, verse 7. Further, they've been brought near to God, united into one body in Christ and reconciled to God, chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 13. Before this, they were without hope and without God in the world, chapter 2, verse 12. Hence, there is the element of objective hope, which is laid up for the believers. And this serves as the basis of the subjective hope. So God has revealed our objective hope. This is what your future is going to be. And the Spirit of God is at work in our lives, fueling the subjective hope. As we look forward to what God has promised in a way that we eagerly await.
We have all this in common. We all belong to the body of Christ. We all have received the same Spirit of God. We all have the same hope, the hope of our calling. So our unity exists in our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Second, our unity exists in our relationship to the Son of God. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And I would suggest that all three of those things relate to God's Son. That's what these verses are doing, celebrating our relationship to God, making mention of each member of the Godhead. One Lord. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Lord of the church. He is the Lord of each and every individual believer. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We are one in our union with Him. We are one in our knowledge of Him. We all know Him. We've all been united to Him and we all know Him and we're one in our devotion to Him. Every genuine believer in this room, together with every other believer, you know Jesus, you love Jesus, you're devoted to Jesus. This is our confession. Acts 2.36, Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, he says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The world may say that Caesar is Lord, we say Jesus is Lord. And out of all of those things that the world worships and follows after, we worship God in and through His Son, Jesus Christ. One Lord. One faith. Now because of what Paul is doing contextually and because of the fact that in verse 5 we're focused on Christ, I understand this one faith to be personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We all have believed in Him. Every true believer in this place, we all believed in Jesus. God gave His Son for us. He lived for us, died for us, was raised for us, and we were joined to Him when by virtue of the gift of faith wrought by the Spirit of God through regeneration in our hearts, we all believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that way we were saved. We all have that in common. We have all trusted in Christ. So not the faith, the Christian faith, considered objectively, but personal faith in Christ, what God has done in our hearts, producing trust in the Son of God. Romans 3.21, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How do we receive the righteousness that will mean our salvation? The answer is through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's for all who believe, he says, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, that is declared right in the sight of God by the judge, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Jesus paid the price so that we could be justified this way. Verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. The blood of Jesus satisfies the demands of God regarding what would be necessary for us to be forgiven and reconciled to God. Jesus paid it all. God displayed Him publicly as a propitiation in His blood. Through faith, this is how we receive His payment for our sins. He goes on to say, for a demonstration of His righteousness 
because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration of His righteousness at the present time so that He would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is no one who will ever be saved who doesn't who isn't saved by the finished work of Jesus Christ and who doesn't have faith in Christ. One Lord, and we've all trusted in Him. One faith. One baptism. One baptism. Now, you know the Bible teaches, Matthew 28, we're baptized in the name, singular, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Our baptism speaks of our faith in God. But what makes Christian baptism unique is that it is in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is there. We have publicly identified ourselves through baptism with our faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When someone is baptized and they go under the water and they come out of the water, it's a picture of death and resurrection. And it's saying that our faith is in the one who lived and died and was raised But it also says we have a new life. We have died with Him and we now live in Him. Christians, by the way, this makes clear, doesn't it? Christians are baptized people. How can he say one baptism? I don't think he's talking about spirit baptism. Again, this is an association with Christ. This is your water baptism. And what the Bible teaches, I mean, you'll look in vain for people on the other side of Pentecost who have faith in Jesus and refuse baptism. They don't exist. No one is saved by baptism. No one. But no one who is saved would go on refusing baptism. That makes sense. Would you say amen? So so baptism is what characterizes the church. We've all been baptized in the name of Christ. Let me give you an example of this from the book of Acts. Acts 19, verses 1 through 5. Now it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper regions and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I don't have time to explain all this tonight, but you do see an unfolding of spirit baptism in the book of Acts that's unique. And God's doing something unique. It's not normative. It's not going to be for the rest of time. But He's doing something in the book of Acts to make clear the oneness of the body of Christ. So we've preached about this before, but if you have questions, you can ask me later. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard if the Holy Spirit is being received. These are disciples of John the Baptist. So the information has not yet been completed with them. They haven't heard the fullness of the message of the gospel. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in Him who was coming after Him, that is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So there it is, already believers in God, trusting in what God had revealed, submitting to John's baptism, so believing up to the point of the information they had. But when they received the rest of the message and they understand that John's pointing to Jesus, and Jesus is the Savior. Now they're baptized in the name of Jesus. So we all have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Is there anybody hearing me tonight that you say you're a Christian, 
but you're still refusing baptism. Do you understand how out of step that is with the Word of God? And if that's you, either admit you don't know Jesus or follow Jesus in baptism because that's what believers are commanded to do. And as, a, as I'm not talking about in each and every moment of time, but over time what will be proven is that is the desire of believers. Baptism doesn't save, but saved people are baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What do we have in common? Our relationship to the Spirit of God. One body, one spirit, one hope of our calling. And He fuels that hope. And He is the first fruits of that future. One Lord, our relationship to Christ, this is what holds us together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Third, our unity exists in our relationship to the Father. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This should stagger us. It's amazing that in Jesus Christ, God is now our Father. Our God is our Father in Jesus Christ. The Father of the Son is the Father of His disciples. Now, we are not sons of God in the same way that Jesus is the one and only Son of God. But He has adopted us as sons and daughters, and He is our Father. And in Jesus Christ, we are members of the family of God. We're not just able to be described as the body of Christ or the temple of the living God. We are the household of God. What is our unity? We are God's household. We're not just a family in name. We're a family in reality. And God has done it. John 20, verse 17, Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me. This is after His resurrection. For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father. My God and your God. One Father. Is God your Father? Through faith in Jesus Christ? Are you a member of the family of God? One Sovereign. Who is our Father? The one who is over all and through all and in all. He's talking about this bond we have together. He's over everything. But He's also over all of us. Everyone in this room who knows Jesus, we all have the same delight. And that is the delight of knowing that there, there's nothing that happens in my life that the God who has related Himself to me in and through His Son by His Spirit and who loves me perfectly, there's nothing going on in my life that's an accident. Nothing. This is the knowledge that will sustain you in a sin-sick world, a world that is not like it's going to be when Jesus returns. This is what sustains you when you meet with the tragedies that you meet with in a world that's still under a curse. We are not spared common sorrows. We know sickness. We know death. We know what it is to bury loved ones. 
in some cases sooner than we hoped or imagined. God's people know what it is to lose children. God's people know what it is to be mistreated, in some cases in the truest sense, in a way the world is never mistreated. This is what bothered Asaph in Psalm 73. And yet we have the joy and the peace of knowing there's not one stray atom in this universe. Nothing is happening to you or me that my sovereign, your sovereign Father doesn't have complete control over. He is over everything and everything in your life. And He's also at the same time at work through it all. He's not only over it all, He's through all. There's nothing taking place that He's not personally involved with in one way or another. It's not to say that God delights in everything happening in this world. It's to say that God is at work in and through all the things that are happening in this world. As Joseph was able to say to his brothers, you, you meant it for harm, but God meant it. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for, for good. Not denying human responsibility, not denying that evil truly exists, but knowing that God's sovereignty means that even when we're meeting with evil, God's not absent from the situation. And He's working through the situation for the good of His people and the glory of His name. This is a strength that lost people know nothing of. But sometimes I've got to ask, do God's people know it? Because sometimes what fuels division in a church is acting like things that aren't pleasant to us represent something we can't walk together through. We can. We can walk together through unpleasant circumstances, even unpleasant circumstances that involve our sins against each other. Unity is found when we know who our God is, that He's over all and He's, He's through all. And where is His work being put on display? In you. He's in all. Everywhere the Spirit of God is residing is the workmanship of God. I heard it read this morning at the close of our service. Pastor Josh read it. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. Verse 10, for you are His workmanship. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As Holner mentioned earlier, one day you're going to be a trophy of His grace. But what's going on on this side of that day? What's going on on this side of that day is He's over it all. He's at work through it all. And the work He's doing is in us all. So that God, may God be glorified in the lives of His people. And one of the ways that He is purposed to be glorified is us all supernaturally getting along. Us all supernaturally loving each other in a way that's forbearing, in a way that's working at it, treasuring this oneness we have. We don't count this to be light. You count it to be a light thing that we all are one body with one spirit and one hope of our calling. Is it a light thing that we have one Lord and one faith and one baptism? Is it a light thing that we all have the same Father? We're, we're brethren. He's over us all and working through it all and at work in us all. Does that matter to you? And when we live in ways that we knowingly 
are contributing to disunity. We are out of step with the purposes of our God. We are saying what you have done to glorify your great name means very little to me at this moment. When you think about it that way, how hateful to God and to us, how hateful should disunity be? How out of step is disunity with our calling? God creating this one new man in His Son. And then us behaving as though these seven ones don't even exist. So let me ask you, does all this really describe you? You're part of the one body? Do you have the Spirit of God? Are you looking forward to your future in Jesus Christ, your inheritance? Is Jesus your Lord? Do you know that faith in Him? Have you been baptized in His name? Do you know God as your Father? Are you related to Him that way? Are you a part of His family? Do you trust His sovereignty? Do you trust His wisdom, His goodness over your life? Do you see His activity through everything you're going through? And do you see that the chief end of it all is a work going on in you? Isn't this so true? We often want God to change our circumstances. When we, what we ought to be asking is, God, change me. Change me. Is this you? And I guess I would ask as I close, if there is any point of disunity between you and someone else in this fellowship, would you lay that down tonight as an act of obedience to your God? Would you see what you've just seen in these verses and say, oh Lord, my conscious contribution to disunity is something you hate. And so I lay it down. I think about what Paul said to the Corinthians when they were suing each other in court. And he says to them, don't you understand it is already an utter defeat for you? You might win in court, in the court of man, but you've already lost in the court of God. And he says, shouldn't you rather, I'm going to paraphrase, but you can look it up. This is what he's saying. Shouldn't you rather just take it? I mean, if it means going before unbelievers and dishonoring the name of God in a court, wouldn't it be better if you just absorbed the offense? To lose in the sight of men, but to win in the sight of God. May the Lord produce that kind of commitment to unity in this church. And the saints would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word that tests us and sifts us and exposes us. It cuts us open and does surgery on us, but then also sews us back up after producing right thinking and right attitudes and right decisions. Wherever you've put your finger tonight on our hearts, wherever you've put your finger on our sins, our failures, may we humble ourselves. This is the spring source from which all these attitudes flow and all these actions are made possible. Humility. Produce in us a humility that treasures the oneness that we have been given by You in Your Son as the Holy Spirit has done His work in our hearts and lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.